This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. This week, Bill and Phil look back at 2023 in our annual Year in Review episode. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Politics Lab. My name is Bill Muck, and I'm a professor of political science at North Central College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Phil Barker, who's a professor of political science at Keene State College. Hey, Phil, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. All that good stuff. Happy Hanukkah. All the good stuff that's going on right now. That's right. It is It is the time to celebrate and relax and, uh, and prepare for the spring semester. That's really what you're doing. Not yet. Yeah. No, the the celebrating and relaxing. We've been doing so much of that that we've had a hard time like finding a, an opportunity to to sit down and record an episode. But uh, that's, that's right. That's what this is all about this time of year, right? It is. It is. Called, there's been less news, to be honest. I mean, there are still news, but there's been less sort of. Every, I think everybody takes a bit of a break around the holidays, and uh, yeah. So we're gonna do our year in review episode where we look back at some of the biggest stories we saw and discussed over the last you know the last twelve months. And although next week we should warn our listeners, I'm gonna be gone because I'm in Costa Rica. So there's another week off and it's uh, but then we promise once we really get into January, we'll start. We'll be a little better about committing to weekly episodes. <laughs> yeah, you're off to Costa Rica on a family vacation. I'm off to New York City for a few days for like a uh, anniversary birthday trip for my wife. So, yeah, it's you and I are still we're extending this this yes. uh, relaxing celebratory season for a little bit. Yeah, it's gotta, it's you yeah. Know, get every little ounce of it that we can. In, this in is right. Off. Cause once, once we get back to the semester, that's when, you know, the weather starts to turn icky and it's just a grind through January and February. But uh, yeah, yeah. So it's going to be nice. We're looking forward to a week down in Costa Rica, exploring and hanging out with sloths and, and, you know, birds. And I don't know, I don't know all the wildlife that is uh, sort of roaming <laughs> Costa Rica. <laughs> Uh, you should bring a sloth back for me. That seems like a fun pet to have. I, I'm not sure what customs, how they handle stuff like that. Is sloth considered a pet? And pet? I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. It's not unreasonable to have a sloth, is it? Just tell them it's your child and get yes. really offended if they challenge <laughs> you right. on it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, before we dive in, why don't you remind everybody how they can stay connected? We, uh, we're not going to have any articles this week, right? Uh, but uh, right. they still may want to check, check out some previous uh, episodes. Yeah, so thepoliticslab.com is our webpage. You can find all of our previous episodes there. For the vast majority of those episodes, we have articles related to the topics we talk about. So you can dig a little deeper, do a little more reading. And again, because we're still in holiday mode, we don't have any of that this this. Uh, um, this week, but you can find you know information on Bill and I and on the podcast and on our social media and our email addresses and all of that stuff um, on the webpage at thepoliticslab.com. That is fantastic. So we're going to be much more informal for this episode, and we thought we would just kind of walk through five or six big stories, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about what we see coming in 2024. But, um, you know, we were just discussing where do we begin, and it seems like all things politics over the last, you know, five years, you have to start with Donald Trump. And and so kind of reviewing some of what happened over the course of the last year with Donald Trump, and Phil, it was a lot. You know, there were multiple indictments. Uh, you know, he was he's back back in the news basically daily um you know his his rhetoric and approach to the presidency has shifted quite dramatically uh where he's talking about you know immigrants poisoning the blood and seeking vengeance and uh embracing the dictatorship label there there's been a lot so as you think about the last uh year of donald trump what what stands out for you 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, that was, you know, when we were talking about this, I think that that has to be like if you're looking at the year in politics, um, you know, from certainly from in American politics, Trump um, is the story. And I, and I think this is, you know, we're seeing the fruition of a lot of stuff that we've seen and talked about for a really long time. So, you know, whether it's the the rhetoric, as you, as, you know, as we've we've discussed, the 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 stuff that seemed kind of dog whistly, you know, whatever, you know, six years ago is now so. So explicitly in the open, the, the talk of, of you know, dictatorship and using force and violence and considering the ways he can use the law to crack down on immigrants and 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 uh, you know, protesters and all of that other stuff. Just I don't know. It just it, it it continues to point to what we've known for a long time. But all of these you know major red flags about democracy. I think the part that is. Uh, and then of course, you know, again, like in, in the, in American history that this is like, it's just been monumental that, that a, a former president is facing 91, uh, indictments, criminal indictments. Um, uh, and, and the, the, the I think the, the really shocking part of the story is that he's still like alive and well yes. as a, as a political actor that like, this is, you know, this time next year. It is not uh, inconceivable that we would be talking about the next Trump presidency, the next term. Right. Um, I, I don't. I mean, it's and, and again, you know, we haven't even talked about. We should talk a little bit about the developments of the last couple of weeks. A number of states who have ruled that he can't be on the ballot. But yeah, I mean, it is. It it just it all seems to point to everything that happened this year that was so monumental points to an even more significant, um, dangerous, scary uh, year next year. Well, I think that's that's well said, because we look when they write the history books there, we don't know what is going to happen in 2024, whether that means Trump wins, Trump loses. Is there going to be violence on the street? These are all things that we don't know yet, but we will look back to 2023 and see all of these developments and help understand what, you know, what created 2024 as a year. And you're right. The fact that you've had, you know, four indictments and, and uh, you know, or charges, 91, you know, charges and whatnot is really truly extraordinary. But not that just it happens that somebody can come out of that and be stronger. I mean, Trump's popularity uh, surged after each one. Um, there, you're seeing some evidence. We talked a little bit about the uh, him being banned from uh, the ballot temporarily. I think he's likely to be reinstated in Colorado and Maine. Um, you know, it looks like support for him is going up in each of those places. So, you know, as these really consequential things where the institution tries to push back and say, you know, this former president has has done dangerous things and either he needs to, you know, have his day in court or be banned from uh, from being on the ballot. It only makes him more popular. It's such a, a bizarro political world that we live in. Yeah, that uh, it's 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 really, really stunning that that could all happen. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's I, I feel like 2023 is, again, setting the stage for what will play out in 2024. Let's talk for just a second. I mean, I realize yeah. this isn't really year in review stuff, but, you know, a couple of those big developments, the the four states have now, uh, you know, uh, had rulings or decisions or whatever that have come down regarding Trump's eligibility to be on the ballot. So Colorado and Maine have ruled that he is ineligible. California and is it Michigan? 
was the other one. There were two states that ruled that he can remain. Yes, he, Michigan's he, he one. Yeah, yeah, be removed. yeah. So California and Michigan, um, which is maybe a little surprising to see those those states be the ones yeah. that. But I, I I don't I mean so now it's it's obviously headed to the Supreme Court. I, I don't I what do you think about there's there's still like you know fifteen twenty other states yeah. where it's pending where these sorts of decisions are haven't been officially made yet. But it feels like we're starting to see these things come in and quickly and and it will have to be decided by. By the Supreme Court. What, what do you? How do you think that will go, and how do you think that should go? Well, there, there are two very important questions, and very different yeah, questions, right. right? My guess is it's going to move quickly, and the Supreme Court is going to act quickly on this, and they will likely uh, prevent that from happening, right? I think they will. The court will likely step in and say that you can't keep them off the ballot. This is too big of an issue. Now they are going to have to do some legal gymnastics and undermine, I think, their argument of of uh, originalism and textualism and states' rights. And All states of the rights, core yeah. arguments. I mean, Gorsuch, there was a, a, some really fascinating writing this week about how Gorsuch had written, it was a decade ago or more ago, about the importance of allowing states to make these determinations on who can be on a ballot or not on a ballot. And I think they're going to have to go against all of that. And I think probably for the better, right? I think you have to probably let this play out in front of the public. It would be too toxic. Uh, but you you have to undermine originalism and textualism and all of that right. to get there. Um, what should happen? I, I'm I'm deeply torn on this because if it wasn't Donald Trump, I think the 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 political system would have no problem saying if you carry out an insurrection against the country, you know that's it. And if this were somebody else, if we were to use the Hitler analogy and say like if Hitler was on the ballot again, you would say no. This is the perfect time to exercise that you know that clause of the Constitution to prevent somebody who's you know carried out a deeply dangerous act against the country to be removed. Um, so I, I think. There is a compelling legal argument, but I think the practicality and the fear of violence in the street is likely going to persuade the Supreme Court to say, um, you know, let's let's move on, get them on the ballot and let the democracy make a hard choice rather than the states or the Supreme Court itself. I don't know. I, what do you what do you, you what, what are you feeling on this? Yeah. Well, I mean, democracy has always made the right decisions. So <laughs> right. We shouldn't yes. worry about yeah. No, no, no. I, I think you're exactly right. I think if you if we were to go back in time, you know, 20 years ago and present the scenario with names and parties stripped from it, right? A, yeah. a person loses, a sitting president loses an election um, and refuses to accept it, stokes, you know, uh, uh, people's, you know, fears, conspiracy theories, pushes yeah. people to, ra to, you know, violently storm the Capitol to prevent the certification of the election. Um, and as a result, faces, you know, whatever, not all related, but, you know, dozens of, of federal criminal charges. Um, the idea would be, well, that is exactly what a hundred percent that is what is was meant by this constitutional amendment yeah. that limited, you know, that said that they can't uh, run for office again. So I think that the, you know, the right decision is that he, this is what, I mean, this is what that is for, right? Like if you, if you can't stand up for and support the, the, the democratic process, then you don't get to participate in the democratic process, right? It's like a, this, you know, this evaluation before you, before you get to join in, you have to like certify that you yeah. agree with the process to some way. Now, Having said all of that, I, I do agree that the the vagueness with which this rule is put out there is problematic. And I think the idea that it is open to you know debate about who gets to make this decision, what is the standard, um, is problematic. And and if it is just up to whatever state to decide, I I think 
we're going to have you know hundred yeah. percent. You know, next time around, the Dem- there's going to be states who are going to say that the yes. Democrats are un- inel- ineligible to run for office and whatever. So, um, all that to say, I think that yes, Donald Trump should be banned because he is what this is written for. But I also think that the sort of I don't know uh, the the looseness of yeah. the the po- the process is um, problematic and dangerous. So I, I think. It's really interesting. And I think maybe this is probably this is maybe ideal that it will happen this quickly, because I sort of imagine what might happen is the Supreme Court is going to have to say something like, look, what is meant is that if you've been convicted of you know this yes. sort of thing, then you're ineligible. But for the Supreme Court to have to say that now before Donald Trump's trial plays out yeah. might be perfect because they're going to sort of back themselves in in a way that says, um, you know, if you're convicted of this, then you can't be on the ballot. And then what happens when he's convicted? Um, so I don't know, maybe they'll try to dodge that question even more. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that this is a good example of where clarifying it is good. But it is also, a, like you said, 100%, you know, conservative principles say the federal government should stay out of it and let yeah. states decide this and yeah. that, you know, we should go with what was meant by the original <laughs> right. uh, writing of the passage. And in all of those instances, they should be the ones on the side of supporting Colorado and Maine. So. It is. And it ends up at the Supreme Court because throughout the course of the year, the party, the you know the Republican Party, Congress, you know, think about all the ways they had a chance of dealing with Donald Trump in a an alternative fashion and nobody would was willing to do so. And I think the court is unwilling as well. And I think that's a really important point. I know, I need, I know we need to talk a little bit about Joe Biden, but I, yeah. I just want to say, you know, this last was this last week, uh, Donald Trump put out a, a message on social media and he was sharing a word cloud. Did you see his word cloud? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. So for our listeners, I don't know if you can, you probably can't see this through the computer, but you know, word cloud is where they, uh, like somebody takes the different words that have been used and they bundle it. And so this was, you know, the way that Trump was being described and the, the words on the word cloud were economy. Okay. Uh, power. Okay. Revenge dictatorship dictator. Um, those were the words that appeared in Trump's word cloud. Those are the words that he's using or the words that people are using to describe him? I think uh, that's a good question. uh, I'm not exactly sure what the the origins of the word cloud were. Um, But Trump is sharing this. He shared that word cloud about him. (laughs) So so what I think, you know, it's sort of reflective of where we are. We're at the end of this year. Trump is now embracing the term dictator, right? A revenge yeah. and dictatorship uh, in, a, in a way where I don't know if a year ago we could have imagined that, uh, that he would have, that anybody in the political system would have embraced the idea um, that, you know, we're dictated. It's OK to describe yourself as a dictator, even if just yeah. for a day. Well, I think I mean, I think that is like one of the stories of kind of what we've maybe we knew this already, but it's become increasingly clear. We talked a little bit about this over the last couple of months, but I I feel like Trump's dictatorial rhetoric or his sort of authoritarian rhetoric isn't, you know, there's this tendency to, you know, people need to be aware of that. That's how people talk about it. But I think that it is, it's, it's a feature. It's not a bug, right? This is what people are, not everyone, but it is what a large chunk of Trump's base is drawn to. It's what we see from, again, from a comparative politics standpoint, when you look across you know, democracies at, at, at individuals who have sort of a Trumpian populist, you know, a, a kind of authoritarian sort of approach to things. It is people who want 
you know, a strong leader who can control, who can, you know, bring stability and all of this other stuff. And it is, it is, you know, when, when, when those sorts of words are thrown around, it doesn't dissuade most Trump voters. It, it invigorates them. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's important to recognize that that's part of what is, you know, being discussed as part of what is the appeal of someone when we're going through all of these broad societal changes that, you know, a strong, a strong leader like Trump can, can sort of stop the the tide of, of change. And that's, that's what people are drawn to about him. And that that's, you know, it's, it's frightening, but that is the, that's yeah. the case. And it leaves us in this surreal moment where if we compare, so maybe we transition to Joe, Joe Biden here. I mean, Donald Trump over the course of the year is engaged, has been indicted, uh, is, is throwing out the term dictator and whatnot, and his approval and support within the Republican Party only grows. Joe Biden, um, you know, has uh, overseen an economy that is, is turned around, has many foreign policy successes, uh, passed domestic legislation. But Phil, his, his numbers have gone down and down. And, and one of the things we've seen, particularly over the last month, uh, is his polling numbers are actually quite low. Uh, you know, a, a few months back, we talked about some of the, the early polling showing that uh, Donald Trump is, is beating Joe Biden in a number of swings. State. So, so what do you think about the arc of Joe Biden uh, in, in a very, very different experience? Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's really fascinating. I mean, it, it goes against so much of what we think as political yeah. scientists. I mean, it, it is uh, there is all sorts of evidence that uh, you know. Uh, people tend to turn on an incumbent, right? It's not unusual for an incumbent to face some level of challenge, but it is a little unusual for an incumbent like Joe Biden, who has achieved a lot and who the economy has done really, you know, this is, I think, one of the interesting things is the economy has done really well at this macro level, but we're we're still living in a place where so many people aren't feeling those benefits yeah. at a micro level yet. But um, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see uh, him struggling despite his success. And in particular, uh, uh, in the face of who the opposition is, right? Like you would think that, you know, again, uh, Joe Biden, who's just doing a, uh, just, you know, even if you just think he's uh, doing a fine job as a caretaker versus like the insanity of Trump, um, it, it's remarkable to see him struggling so much. I, it's, it's, I don't know. Do you have theories on, I, I mean, I, I think there's lots of reasons to think that might still change. Yeah. And we can talk a little bit about that when we get to predictions for 2024, but um, do you have like a, a notion of why he's struggling or any like, I don't know, I have a few theories myself, I guess. But, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think you're, you're, you highlighted one incumbency, right? So there's been a fair amount of comparisons to the Obama you know term where he was at and he was also struggling, maybe not quite as much as Joe Biden. But still, it's, it's a difficult time when you're running. The other thing is, I, I don't know if people are really tuned in. Uh, you yeah. know, there was some polling done uh, about like among Republicans and, and, and the public as a large and how many of them think that Trump's going to be the nominee. And it's still a relatively no, low number. Right. So I, I think part of the public hasn't grappled with the fact that that uh, Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee and what that means. So, you know, people are not tuned in yet. Um, you highlighted something. You talked about how people feel. I think there's mm -hmm. a difference in terms of what the economic numbers are and how people feel about the economy, yeah. right? And they're they're still sort of stuck in this place where it feels like inflation is still a real problem and it feels bad, even if the numbers are not. And so I, I don't know how a candidate like Joe Biden gets over that, but I think there's a sense of malaise, you know, a frustration with the political system, a frustration with the economy. Um, and I think Joe Biden is getting hit with those headwinds where people say, I'm just not happy. I'm frustrated. Frustrated, um, and you're in charge, so I'm going to be angry with you. Now, I think a lot of that will change 
once we get into the heart of the campaign and once it is Joe Biden against Donald Trump and we see that contrast, um, you know, it sounds like those in the Biden campaign are still feeling really good about their chances. They're feeling good about the swing states. So, you know, they they believe they're in a good place. But the the polling suggests otherwise. And again, a, a very bizarre moment for us to, to be in. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I can't help but think that as we get closer to the election, we'll, I, I just have a hard time putting a whole lot of faith in the numbers right yeah. now um, as people are confronted more and more with the actual choice. Um, we'll see if it holds up. But I, I, I have my own little personal theory yeah. as well. I'm just kind of thinking through a little bit, which is about some of the differences between the Republican coalition and the Democratic coalition mm-hmm. right now, which is that, you know, you, the Republicans, I think what we've learned is that they thrive on the being on the outside, right? Like they're really good at critiquing Democrats in power and are pretty have shown to be pretty ineffective at actually doing anything once they're in power. The remarkable thing is that the public doesn't seem to yet hold them accountable for that. But, but, but Donald Trump is in his kind of ideal place on the outside complaining about Joe Biden, as opposed to having to carry to actually, you know, legislate or do, do something. And so I think that plays to him. And, And then there's also, I think there's this difference in that, I don't, I don't even, I haven't even fully fleshed this out, but I, it's been interesting watching and talking to students even, um, about Joe Biden. And, and I think the, 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 uh, especially young liberals have yeah. this sort of have really high expectations of people. Right. And there's this element to some extent of, you know, if Joe Biden isn't perfect, then they are you know upset with him. Right. And so mm. he has, uh, left a lot of people unhappy with his response to Israel Gaza and I think one of the things you see is you you see people, young young liberals, who um, aren't aren't willing to sort of look the other way at at things that they see as flaws or bad policy decisions, um, which in a political world, like there's you have to make some of these uh, you know concessions or whatever. Yeah. On the flip side, the Republicans are like the extent to which Donald Trump is imperfect isn't a a mark against him. It's like in some way, like like he thrives off of it. And so there are these sort of different understandings of like how what our political leaders should look like on these sides. And and so it's something that is benefiting Donald Trump on the Republican side and hurting Joe Biden on the liberal side. I, I don't know exactly how all that plays out. Um, but, um, I, I do feel like I see a little bit of that playing out in the, in the democratic coalition, um, in a way that the, the Republican coalition doesn't, you know, again, Republicans who are willing to say Donald Trump is flawed in all these different ways, but I will still get behind him yeah. because he's better than a Democrat and Democrats aren't, aren't that willing to do that at this point. Well, then the big question comes, especially for young voters on the Democratic side, when it comes to election time, do their frustrations with Joe Biden, are they more important than the danger that Donald Trump poses, right? And so we saw... In uh, you know 2016, a lot of young liberal voters didn't show up, and they're like, right. it doesn't matter. 2020, more of them showed up, and it was decisive for the election, right? And so, what happens in 2024? Uh, do liberal voters, especially young liberal voters, say like, I- I'm just frustrated Joe Biden didn't do enough, or is the fear of Donald 
Trump enough to drive people to the polls. It was in 2020. It may or may not be in 2024. This is a really interesting question. It, you know, we've talked before about how like cynicism is like the death blow to democracy. Yeah. But at the same time, it is 100 percent right to be cynical about American politics right now. Yeah. And so it's that it's that real dilemma of, I think, particularly uh, with young Americans, there are so many who have increasingly gotten to where they feel like there aren't significant differences, neither parties really addressing the things that are of concern to them. Yeah. Um, and, and they are both right and wrong at the same time, right? There are significant differences in terms of commitment to democracy and whatnot between the two candidates that, um, yeah, it'll, it'll be, it's, it's a, we're at a, a, a really fascinating, really dangerous place in, in democracy right now, I think. It is another another year of, of democracy hanging on. So we've talked about the executive branch. Let's transition and talk about uh, about Congress and talking about the Supreme Court. Where, where do you want to start, Phil? Should we start with the Supreme Court? Start with Congress? Where, where do you want to go? Well, both of them offer yeah. a nice contrast in that we've been talking about the ways that democracy doesn't work. And these have both been, you know, shining beacons of democratic effectiveness <laughs> yes. this year. So, no, I mean, let's talk about, let's start with Congress, right? Because yeah. this is, I, I think the, uh, I mean, both of them are, uh, have been, there's been lots of developments. But the, you know, the speaker, you would, well, before we started recording, you were talking about our first episode of 2023 was talking about the election of, of the Speaker of the House the first time around yeah. that, that carried on. Kevin McCarthy. For, yeah, it carried on for, I mean, more than more than a week because we had yeah. multiple episodes dedicated yes. to the process and and the the sort of bargain, the difficulty with which to go back around to this, the Republican Party, right, has control of the House, but can't even choose leadership, much less legislate. Um, and so, you know, again, back to this idea of the Republican Party sort of thrives when they're out of power. This is an example of where they got power. But it's it's also an example of of the ways in which the sort of Republican wing of the Republican Party has kind of hijacked things, right? I mean, it was both that, the, 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 his, uh, McCarthy's loss of the speakership, the difficulty in finding a replacement for him all kind of comes back around to this kind of far right wing of the Republican party and their ability, um, to, to sort of throw their weight around. I, I mean, what do you, I, I, there's, I don't, I, what do we, what do we have to say about that other than it kind of points to so yeah. much dysfunction that we've seen kind of building up for so long. And, and the full Trumpification of the Republican party, right? So, cause you start with Kevin McCarthy who, you know, basically did everything he could to get in the good graces of Donald Trump. And, um, you know, even in terms of his own power deal, you know, it was giving, uh, the Freedom Caucus and an extraordinary amount of power to bring his speakership to an end, which they ultimately exercised. Right. So he had to compromise. But even that wasn't good enough. And then to ultimately have Mike Johnson uh, be elected as the speaker. Right. I think that's really telling where we start. You know, Kevin McCarthy does everything he can to get elected. It's the first time in history tossed out. And then the the next choice uh, after many, many attempts was Mike Johnson. The only successful one is somebody who, you know, is an election denier, um, you know, fits perfectly within that Trump camp. He's, he's obviously more well-spoken. He's a, he's a smoother, less uh, vulgar politician. Uh, but it, it's sort of reflective on where the party was. And if they're trying to find leadership now, it is not the moderates. It's not the the calm voices of, of previous Republican eras. It's somebody like Mike Johnson, somebody who's all in on the Trump worldview. It's, it's uh, again, very re- revealing. Yeah, I mean, what, like, how do you... 
I don't I mean, this is where I, I wrestle with this, right? Because it doesn't make sense to me yeah. um, as an individual. But I know there are political scientists who make sense of this. How do you make sense of a situation like this where, again, over and over again, you have a dysfunctional Republican Party, right, who can't elect leaders, can't pass legislation. Yeah. We talk about when Donald Trump was, you know, he is sort of a chaos agent. And, and yet people don't like nothing significant, yeah. like you, you don't have mainstream Republicans abandoning the party. It's, you don't have uh, voters largely abandoning. I mean, you have some, but not, you know, we're still at a place where, you know, as of right now, the Republicans are likely to win. It kind of goes against everything that you see really in most other countries where people look to, they want to see government that is, they want parties who are effective, who get things done. And, and the, the Republican party is sort of none of that right now. And yet, um, is, has this weird sort of position of strength. What, like what, how do you explain that? Is that how much of that is institutions? How much of it is the sort of, uh, kind of, you know, white Christian nationalism yeah. element of things like what, what's the, I, I don't know. It's just, you know, even though we talk about this all the time, I still kind <laughs> of go in circles in my head about, I, I understand how this is playing out, but, it, but like understanding it in a, this makes sense kind of way is still challenging a lot of times. It is. I mean, it reveals the power and the appeal of populism, uh, right. Mm-hmm. You know, this long standing strategy of vilifying the other. I mean, I think that's, that's where it comes, right. The other is so dangerous, uh, that you, you simply cannot allow them to get in power, which means that you have to find a more extreme version, a more militant, a more dogmatic, right. It, it you can't have modern, uh, the Mitt Romneys of the world are not going to defeat the dangers of of liberalism, right? And so it's sort of you you get this momentum, and it, it feeds in, as you know, to Christian nationalism with with elements of religion, with elements of race. All of these things, everything becomes an existential fight, uh, and so then that tends to cause the the more extreme, the more devout to be successful, and that's what we've seen. And you make a great point. It's not at all connected to governance anymore, right? It doesn't matter yeah. if you govern well or you pass legislation. I think the House set a record for like the least amount of legislation that has ever been passed in a, in a typical period. So that doesn't matter anymore. It's about how you portray yourself, how you vilify the other, and, and how you embrace this battle against the evil of liberalism. And yeah. it's proven electorally successful at, at, at a certain level. Like It still hasn't translated into presidential success. But um, yeah, it's I think it's it's sort of scary that that has been as effective as as it has. Yeah. Well, it's and we're again, you see this in lots of other places as well, but it is in the United States where that you know when when it isn't when it is an existential threat, when when losing, you know, when Democrats taking over is a threat to your way of life. Yeah. Um, you start to see a party that turns on the core values that that uh, that are that are central to democracy, right? So, like the the things like elections, whoever wins elections um, gets to govern. Start if you think that the other side winning an election is dangerous, you start to turn on those core notions of you know again of you know the the ideas that that we think of as America being founded on of 
you know, like, um, you know, the ideas of, of a melting pot and freedom of speech and all these other things start to go out the window when those contribute to right. the threat yeah. um, of, of you losing your way of life. And so that that's where people start to turn on democracy itself when they feel like the stakes are, are high enough. And and that's a result of, I, again, I think 40 years of rhetoric from the from the right about about the threat of of, you know, minorities and, and, and changing uh, societal attitudes and whatnot. I, I, that's absolutely right. The good news is, though, the court, the Supreme Court, <laughs> had a had a solid year, right? I mean, <laughs> God, let's hope that let's hope that when we do the twenty twenty four year interview, there are some more uplifting stories right. as opposed to the. Right. This is not a great start to twenty twenty three in review. Yeah, I mean, the court. This is again like a, you know looking at. Um, you know the legitimacy of institutions and all sorts of other stuff. The way democracy should work, it was it was a hell of a year for the court, right? I, from from the decisions that came down to uh, you know corruption scandals, um, which is you know largely Clarence Thomas, but others as well, uh, to these kind of um, yeah, the technical term I think is half-assed attempts to to put in place ethics codes. I, like which right. of those is the the big story for the court? Well, I think the big one has to be the ethics, you know, the, the, the ethics reform or the lack of ethics reform. I mean, the the drip, drip, drip of Samuel, uh, not Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas. I mean, Alito had his, his some minor issues, but it was really a year of Clarence Thomas where every every couple months there was a new case of him getting something free at a house or a truck or, you know, and it exposed uh, you know, a real problem in the court that they they are not able to self-regulate, that even if there isn't anything inappropriate about this, it creates the appearance of impropriety. Right. I mean, it's it's, it's we can't say for certain that uh, Clarence Thomas's decisions were influenced by this, but it creates the perception that they may have been right. You're, you think maybe it does. is <laughs> <laughs> not so convinced. But but I think that that for me is the big story of the court is that you have a, a situation where all of these concerns have arisen while the court has taken a much more conservative direction. So we're seeing a court that is embracing a lot more political decisions, uh, selecting cases that are highly contentious and highly political and and tend to uh, resolve those in a more conservative direction. So you know, I think the the legitimacy of the court really is is at stake, and especially if they can't get the ethics stuff in order. But but I think also we're seeing this year we saw the court really put its foot down in the direction of a much more conservative direction. And I think that's, we should anticipate that speeding up in the years to come. Yeah. Well, and it's not just the rulings. It's like the rhetoric they use in yes. the rulings and around the rulings. You know, it's it, it, we've talked about like the boldness with which, you know, the, the the Thomases and Alitos talk about stuff is it's it's like they feel sort of un, unchained, un, un, unleashed for the yes. first time. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, in an era in which, uh, you know, for a long time, the court was kind of the one institution that still maintained its legitimacy in the or more so maintained its legitimacy in the eyes of the American public. And that has just collapsed in the last few years. It's now very much in line with with all the other institutions. And so it, it is this perfect storm of uh, rulings that are that are no longer in line with the American people with almost uh, like, you know, tough shit attitude that comes from the rhetoric around it by by some of the conservative justices. And then you throw in the all this like corruption stuff. And it, it is a perfect storm for, um, you know, any one of those things would be a real reason for 
declining legitimacy of the court, right? But, um, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, evidence that shows that a court that is out of sync with the American people is going, you know, it's going to lose legitimacy. But when it's out of sync with the American people and in sync with certain elites who happen to be, you know, giving huge amounts of money to to the justices, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's not a great look. Well, especially when you've got so many of the country's most essential questions no longer being decided by Congress, right? But they're being decided by the courts, right? And that uh, uh, that is, you know, the, the courts have a role in all of this. But if Congress could be a bit more functional, um, you could be addressing a lot of those issues there. Um, but that's not what's happened, right? We've brought a partisan lens to the Supreme Court, and so now it's intentionally being brought there to say, like, hey, we prefer the court to decide these issues. And you're right, long term, if the court is too far out of step with the American public, it's going to undermine legitimacy. It's going to undermine the the democracy. So I do wonder whether John Roberts is starting to feel a little bit of pressure and maybe Kavanaugh, you know, maybe they'll pull the court, try to pull the court back a little more towards the center. But it's arguably, I mean, I don't want to say it's too late, but it's, I mean, you could make an argument that it's too late for that because this is to go back to our first topic, right? Like in the next year, we're going to have, the court's going to be deciding a number of essential cases uh, in regards to democracy, whether it's whether Trump should remain on the ballot, whether he's immune from prosecution, all sorts of stuff. That's just scratching the surface of all the stuff that we're likely to see around Trump moving forward. And so now you're going to go to a court who has just like destroyed its legitimacy over the last couple of years. It's so that now I, I don't know that either side is going to be particularly, you know, it, it, whatever the decision, like what we need now yeah. as democracy is in question is some legitimate institution that people can look to. And now the court is no longer that. So if they find for Trump in some of these things, I don't know that you know, the, their legitimacy is sort of gone. Like the idea that, yeah. that liberals will defer to the court because they are a legitimate institution feels questionable to me. Yeah. But on the flip side, if the court rules against against Trump, like Trump has spent so long destroying and yeah. undermining institutions that it also. So I I feel like, you know, it's it's great now that the court might be like, well, maybe we went too far, but you went too far and now we need a court that we can have faith in and, and we don't at this point. It's 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 a it's a volatile, dangerous, you know, explosive situation, I think. It, it is, right? And and uh, we look at the cases that are coming up next year. There are, like you said, there are some really heavy-hitting cases that that fall on partisan lines. And not all of them, but there's a number of them that, that are particularly powerful. So, yeah, go ahead. What should we? Uh, yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, uh, these have been, like, contentious... Uh, uh, volatile, dangerous topics we've talked about, but at least international politics went well. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, so let's spend let's spend ten or fifteen minutes talking about yeah. the 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 year in international politics, and I think that's you know obviously there were all sorts of shifts in U.S. Chinese relations and in seemingly bad ways, but then maybe some positive ways at the end. The 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 trajectory of the Ukraine war, um, obviously towards the end of the year, Israel Gaza stuff going on. What what stands out to you internationally? when you look back on 2023? Well, I think a real evolution in the relationship between the United States and China. And you mentioned that. So we started, it wasn't, you know, too far into 2023 when there was the the spy balloon, right? I think you called it, what did you call it? You had a wonderful title, balloonacy or something. Um, <laughs> which right. was just, I forgot about that. It's a great, great title. Um, and, and you think about the arc of that relationship where the United States was sending off the Secretary of State to meet with China to reduce tensions. And then the spy balloon incident happens and the United States 
States and China basically go other directions. The nationalism heats up. The rhetoric hang, heats up. Joe Biden is shooting any sort of balloon out of the sky because he doesn't want to look weak because Democrats and Republicans are, are now hawks, China hawks. And, and to see that, right, the revving up of that relationship and then I think sort of interesting in the last couple months, some sort of quiet efforts on both sides mm-hmm. in the United States and China to de-escalate things, to say like, wow, that actually got a little out of control. Um, we don't need to be best friends, but let's try to find ways of having at least some basic level of communication where last month the United States and China agreed to once again have communication between militaries that had been cut off. And that's sort of a, you know, a, a one-on-one to avoid wars to make sure that at least your, your militaries can talk to each other. So to see that relationship like start in a good direction and then just absolutely blow up uh, and then maybe come back a little bit was, as I think, revealing about how dangerous long term the United States and, and Chinese rivalry is going to be and the importance of having thoughtful leadership, right, who's not going to be yeah. brought into sort of these hyper nationalist claims. So it uh, for me, that was a really, really interesting one. What about, what about you? No, I mean, I, I think building off of, yeah, I, I, to go along those lines. Yeah, the U.S.-China, the, the the story, the trajectory was really a fascinating one because it wasn't that long ago. And I don't think we've changed that much, but it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about, you know, the beginning of a new Cold War. Um, mm-hmm. You know, things, tensions continued to escalate. Things got worse and worse. We... You know, I, I, we, we in, in my foreign policy class, you probably talk about this as well. We talk a lot about like how much does the president matter? And, you know, there was this this idea that, you know, Biden would be so different from Trump. And I think Biden has been so different from Trump in a lot of ways. But in foreign policy, um, you know, certainly has been different in terms of, of his approach to NATO and whatnot. But that continued like sort of critique and pushback against China was was something that didn't really change. And it, and it kind of it felt like it sort of culminated this year year with the, like you said, the balloon stuff, but you know, uh, lots of pushback on, on, um, you know, a number of, a number of the big legislative wins of, of Biden were things that sort of, uh, you know, as part of the legislation targeted Chinese production, um, or, you know, uh, uh, the selling of products, chip production and stuff like that as well. And so, yeah, it did feel like this year they 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 finally, there was finally this recognition, like you said, that, that we need each other, even if we don't like each other. Um, and that feels positive, but all of that feels to me like the big story for me internationally was, uh, it felt a little bit like, I mean, I really 2022 as well, but the last kind of two years really feel like a turning point in sort of the remaking of international politics, right? It feels like the end of that post cold war era of like American leadership and, you know, whatever that meant, but the combination of, I mean, that was, we didn't talk about that, the the sort of support of um, Russia by China or the unwillingness of China to sort of push back against Russia. Um, you know, the, the Russia-Ukraine war, the U.S.-Chinese tensions, even what's happening now with like Israel and Gaza and American support for Israel and much of the rest of the world uh, being, um, much, most of the rest of the world being much more critical of Israel. Um, it really feels like we're at a, like, it feels like we're like, this will be a period we look back at as like really a sort of reshifting remaking of international politics. And I think that, uh, uh, there's a lot, we talked a little bit a few weeks ago about maybe it was more than a few weeks ago about like whether we're entering this multipolar world and like America's ability to adjust to sort of a new reality um, is crucial. I I think about like Britain and, you know, Britain sort of failed to adjust to a new reality after World War II in which they were no longer the world 
dominant power and, and, you know, you kind of see where they are now. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is a, a, a really important period in international politics. And I, I don't know exactly where it goes, but I, I think sometimes we miss the significance of the moment when we're living through it. It, it certainly is a transitory or transition point, right? And, and Joe Biden still has his feet in the old camp, right? He still is a guy that believes in NATO and believes in kind of uh, conducting foreign policy the way that we did during the Cold War. But the rest of the world has kind of moved on. Uh, and they're less convinced that American support is going to be there. Europe uh, is is terrified that Donald Trump is going to win again. And so that you know makes them more hesitant to engage with the United States. And you're right. The world, world is changing in dramatic ways. And um, sometimes it's hard to see that in the moment. But uh, you're right. This, I think, will look back both domestically and internationally as this point being one of those pivot uh, points where history is moving in a new direction, but it's not entirely clear what that looks like. I, some of that, I think, can be like seen, or the trajectory, the shift, can be seen in in the the the, the Russia Ukraine war to some extent, yes. where it felt like early on. It was this kind of rallying moment for much of the world. It felt like, I don't know, a positive light. And, and you know, we had been seeing the sort of democratic backsliding. And it felt like this sort of uh, moment of awakening where people realized, like, that, that you know, it, standing up for democracy is important. And, and it, you know, a resurgence of NATO and all of that. And, and now as it's carried on, we've seen, especially this year, this really kind of somewhat odd shift, particularly amongst Republicans who have, again, I think the far right or the, I don't even know if you can call it the far right anymore. The, the sort of populist right was sort of supportive, uh, more supportive of Russia from the beginning in weird ways, but it's, we've seen the Republican party as a whole kind of shift to this more skeptical stance, even if it's not pro-Russia, it's, it's kind of weirdly not pro-Ukraine. Um, and, and so I, I don't know, it felt like we maybe saw world politics going in one way and we're seeing it shift in another. And that's kind of played out in, in how America approaches Ukraine to some extent. I, what do you, what do you think about, like, what do you, what's the, what are the lessons or when you think about particularly Republican support for Ukraine and and the shift it's gone through this year? Like what, what do you make of that? It's, it's, surprising because you think about in the early stages so we're you know you go back to the two years ago when the war first began everybody you're right this was i should say not everybody but in the united states democrats and republicans were behind this for the most part um and it was a rallying cry for about a year right and then we get to 2023 and we start to see that chip away and primarily among uh the sort of group of republicans the trump republicans started to lose support and it's it's stunning because you know it, the party is moving in a more as you said more pro russia uh, pro hungary pro, you know, anti-liberal direction. And it's so hard to imagine this being the same Republican Party that throughout the Cold War was so staunchly against the Soviet Union. And this is not the Ronald Reagan Republican Party anymore. And so it makes Joe Biden's job incredibly difficult. Because now he has to try to find a way to get support for Ukraine, knowing that if he doesn't, 
uh, this dramatically helps Vladimir Putin, right? I mean, that's the reality of this is uh, Vladimir Putin is, is is increasingly excited about his prospects in Ukraine because he sees Ukraine running out of munitions, running out of international support. If the United States you know, begins to pull back, Europe will follow. Uh, and then suddenly Russia's in an entirely different position to take over large chunks of Ukraine, right? I mean, we know the reality if the United States doesn't provide this support, uh, yet and Republicans are not persuaded by that. So it's, it's a really, uh, again, just astonishing moment that we're at where that in the course of one year that a political party could make such a, a dramatic uh, shift in its view of defending democracy and, and again, being pro-Russia. Do you, th- do you think that's a, a result of a detachment between the sort of reality of things, meaning like a, a Russia-Ukraine war is like abstract to most people? And so the, the implications of that also seem abstract. And, and so it's easy to talk about in kind of a pundit way without thinking about the realities of it. Or... Is it that these people are actually supportive of Russia or, you know, more supportive of the the Putin-esque, the, you know, Orban-esque kind of politicians that there actually is, you know, we talked about like there is this desire for more authoritarian, strong leaders around the world. And, and they are leaders who tend to be sort of, you know, uh, more nationalist, more kind of, you know, of, uh, you know, and Putin is, you know, Orban is very sort of anti-immigrant. Putin is, is anti-immigrant, anti, you know, anti-gay, anti all sorts yeah. of other stuff. So is it actually an affinity for them or is it that they're not really thinking about it and they get caught up in the rhetoric? Because there's part of me that even yeah. thinks of like Trump, like you could say that Trump is pro-Russia, but I kind of suspect a lot of it is more Trump just mouthing off, right? Yeah. His attempt to say like, oh, I would, if I were elected, I would fix this instantly. And it's not that he actually cares. He's not thinking about it, but people are latching on to that. Yeah. You know, his followers are like, yeah, this support of Ukraine is crazy. Trump would whatever, you know, yeah. so I, like what, what is the, I realized I presented several, you know, big <laughs> uh, <laughs> hypotheses there, but uh, uh, does one of those make more sense to you than others? Yeah, I think, I think some of it is an affinity, right? They're, they're looking for like, like-minded individuals. And when you look around yeah. the world, when the Trump group looks around the world, they look to Hungary, they look to uh, to Russia, and they see similarities, right? And that's appealing, right? It's, you know, you say, okay, well, let's, we see similarities in Argentina and Brazil, and right, so this model. And so even if it's Russia, you're like, well, hey, they're doing things in a similar way. I think the other factor I would highlight is this belief that only domestic politics matters. And they, for many of them, they think about international politics only as it impacts domestic politics. So, you know, the Russia-Ukraine war isn't a real thing to think about. It's only how does the Russia-Ukraine war impact domestic politics, impact our own political dynamics here. And I think there's an obsession with only thinking about that. And it's a result for not really caring about governance. You know, these issues don't matter. They only matter in terms of how they impact this political game you're playing. Uh, and I, I see a lot of that where the this group has been caught up. And, and I think, you know, again, if you removed all the names and just sort of described the situation, I think most everybody would say the right thing to do here is to support Ukraine. But that doesn't right. matter, right? It really is this domestic political game that clouds everything else and, and it means governance doesn't matter so which again is is, is a pretty dark take on all that phil <laughs> yeah no i think you're that's really interesting as you say that because when i think about putin i think about like how in, in so many ways and this ties into 
the I think it is also when you say it's all about domestic politics, it's also the to the extent that this is just abstract, because I think when you think of Putin and I think about like, uh, I don't know, Republican talk or conservative talking heads, um, what you get is like when you look at Putin, he's kind of the embodiment of a lot of that, the sort of smug, like tough shit, you snowflakes kind yeah. of approach to things, right? Like, like the sort of dismissive and, and anyway, um, and I see like that, yeah. that that's appealing to people. You know, there's something about that approach to, you know, critics or opponents that has become kind of part of the conservative movement. And when you're detached and you're not living in Russia under what it looks like when a, when a, a authoritarian leader governs that way, it can be easy to see that as like, you know, whatever appealing or entertaining yeah. or whatever. And I think that detachment between the reality and, and the, the sort of, um, uh, language or, or approach is, is part of what contributes to it as, as well, which is basically exactly what you're saying, right? It's when yeah. it's about domestic politics, you're not having to actually live under Vladimir Putin or Viktor Orban. And so you can, you can yeah. kind of see that as, as I don't know, uh, I, I don't know, positive or <laughs> it's, right. it's weird that people are drawn to it, but, I, but I suppose that, you know, it's weird to me that people like that sort of smug Trumpian approach to things as well. So. Absolutely. That's a, that's a good point. Well, we should, let's transition. We got like 10 minutes left. Let's talk about right. as we look forward into 2024. Now I, I will say, Phil, and you know this well, political scientists, we are not good at We're predictions, no. but nevertheless, <laughs> let's take some time and make some predictions that inevitably will prove to be wrong. So as right. you look out into 2024, what do you see? Do you see what kind of trends are happening? What, uh, what predictions might you make? Well, I mean, I think the thing the when I think about the big stuff to yeah. look forward that with it, that we're going to see play out in in 2024, the the obvious thing that I that I that like rises to the top of the list are Trump's trials and the election yeah. of 2024, yes. and and I am still far enough away from it that I like continue to make relatively bold predictions. <laughs> and so we'll, we'll see, we'll come back to this next year and see, but like my, my thought initially is like on that. Well, I, I feel like I can make even more bold predictions on the trial stuff. I, I think Trump, assuming he doesn't win the election and assuming the trials happen or assuming the trials happen before he is elected, Trump's going to be convicted. I, I, there's on some of these on, on many, if you know, I don't know that it will be all of them, but I, we've, talked about the documents case, I think is fairly straightforward. Um, I think the way the prosecution has sort of structured the case in the January 6th stuff makes it fairly straightforward and easy to establish that the Georgia case looks, you know, the, the number of people who have, uh, you know, uh, in, entered pleas and agreed to testify against him. Like again, Trump is able to play the the sort of public, the PR game, the political yeah. game really well, but that has its limits in a court of law. And I think I my you know I think he he ends up this year at some point being convicted mm -hmm. um, in at least some of these cases. Now some of them may very well play on into 2025 yeah. or whatever, but I, I, I feel like pretty strongly that we're going to see that play out. What that means for elections and for democracy, that's much harder yeah. for me to predict. But from a legal standpoint, that feels like a fairly safe bet for, for me. Do you, do you, do you agree on that? Do you I, see that playing out differently? I agree. I think it's going to come down to timing, right? I think his Trump's only yeah. hope is, is can he delay enough of these trials? It's probably, we're probably only going to get one of him in. Uh, before before the election. But as long as we get one in, I think the odds are he's going to lose that case. 
Um, but yes, and so can he push those back and hope to win the election? But I think you're right. The cases are overwhelming. Building off that, if I was going to make a prediction about all of these, thinking about the Supreme Court, I think the Supreme Court is going to continue to rule in like pro-conservative directions, but be very anti-Trump. So I think we're likely to see decisions that are going to be supportive of conservative causes, but I think Trump is going to get skunked when he goes to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. I think they're going to continue to say, no, you're not immune. You know, I think the court will be anti-Trump, but pro-conservative along those lines. And I think that's going to make it more difficult for him to, to do well in these trials. Which is really interesting. I mean, when we yeah. talk about the, the 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 court being sort of separated or isolated, like it makes sense that the court is probably slower to yeah. adopt the Trumpian mindset of the Republican Party. And it would make sense that they're more in line with the Republican Party of 15 or 20 years ago, which would be, again, more likely to say to a sitting president, yeah, you don't get to you don't get to do whatever you want. And so um, I tend to agree with you. I, I think that they will unstuff like whether he should be on the ballot. I think they'll continue to be more favorable yeah. to him yeah. on that sort of stuff. But yes, on the immunity claims. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, now, I, I will say that, I mean, the big story is is the 2024 election yeah. and, and my uh, my predictions on that. I, again, continue to be relatively bold in saying I don't think we have much to worry about. I think we have a lot to worry about. If Trump wins, it is massively yeah. it is hugely bad for democracy. Right. I, I, it's like hard for me to imagine how democracy as we know it survives if Trump yeah. wins. But I'm not in a panic mode yet. And I and I think that's because there's so much still to happen with cases, with as people are re-exposed to Trump in ways that they haven't been for the last several years. Like you said, I think most people aren't paying attention. And as as the the stakes become clearer and clearer, I still think that Joe Biden, just like the last, you know, two elections have gone gone, the midterms and the the um the 2020 election, I, I think we see a Joe Biden assuming he's physically, yeah, right, right. you know, well, um, I think, uh, I think he wins. Um, I, are you like, how confident are you in that prediction? I am. So he, I think it is going to be very close again, but I think you're right. I think you're right. I think it's, I think it's not inconceivable that Democrats as a whole have a very good year winning, you know, yeah. maybe winning the house, maybe keeping the Senate, right? I think all of those things are in play because of Donald Trump. Now, this is not going to be a landslide. It, it, the, just the way the math is, it's always going to be close and it's going to come down to tens of thousands of votes in a in a handful of states. But but if you're looking at the data and getting past a little bit past sort of the most immediate polling, Joe Biden is still remains in a stronger position uh, in a number of states. So I think it's likely uh, that he's, he's going to win. And I, I feel fairly comfortable in that. Now, again, there are things that could happen between now and then that dramatically change this, but if the election were soon, I think you're absolutely right that um, it looks like it's shaping up to be a good year for Democrats. My, my, I, I agree. My, my other prediction, though, yeah. is that I think we have more to worry about, more to figure in 2025 than we had in 2021. Like, I, oh, interesting. I, yeah. what happened in January, January 6th was, I think, you know, we've talked to Jim Waller, we've talked about like how, you know, yeah. there was lots that showed that that was coming. And I think, 
This time around, the the rhetoric, as we talked about with Trump, the rhetoric of Trump has shifted even more dramatically. The stakes are even higher. It's not the potential prospect of criminal charges. He is facing them right now. He's had extra years to continue to sort of uh, feed this narrative about stolen elections and about the, you know, the evilness of Democrats. Um, I think if he loses, uh, I, either way, right? Yeah. If he wins, what he's going to unleash is going to be bad. But if he loses, it does not mean that January 6th will happen or something worse than January 6th will happen. But I think the risk, like if we yeah. could go back to 2021 and talk about the risk of something like that happening, and then we look at the risk of something like that happening in 2025, I think the risk is even higher this time around for uh, political violence and and stuff like that. Um, and And that's... Frightening. Yeah, absolutely. Right. No, that's that's a really important thing to think about. It's not just who wins the presidential election, but what comes after that, both in terms of, once again, that transition of power, if Biden stays in office, but also, you know, when the when it's time, if Trump is convicted to to put him in jail, like what, how do people respond to that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Along those lines, but sort of linking it back to the election, I would make a prediction that in the United States and globally, immigration is going to be the central Mm -hmm. issue. We are starting to see Donald Trump use it with great effectiveness, but not just Donald Trump around the world. Now you are seeing immigration sort of pop populist immigration dynamics, and it seems to be effective in Europe and in elsewhere. And I think we're entering a period where immigration is going to be one of the central issues for all states around the world as people are leaving one part of the world, coming to another, as climate gets more, as as, as sort of inequality grows, you're just going to see more and more people moving. And there are there are political parties positioned well to use that to their advantage. And so um, I think that we shouldn't be surprised to see immigration in the United States and around the world as sort of being this central issue and being presented in a a fairly uncomfortable racist sort of way. I think that's that's where we're likely heading. I think that's right too. I, I think as you as you were talking, I'm thinking about there have been so many like ana- comparisons or analogies from the like early 21st century to the early 20th century, yeah. and I, and I feel like you know we, we we talk about like the age of nationalism from like the you know 1800s into the into the 1900s of the 20th century, and that culminated in you know the world wars and whatnot. And yeah. it feels like we're kind of on that trajectory of like a second era of nationalism that's been right. um, sort of awoken or aroused by this you know this sort of global uh, immigration, and, and that. Um, as you see countries sort of double down on some of uh, this rhetoric of of nationalism and, you know, very, I was going to say not that far below the surface, but oftentimes on the surface, yeah. um, the idea of like superiority, right? That like, again, European culture is superior or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. The, the dangers of that. It, it does feel like we're kind of heading for a uh, it doesn't mean it will end the same way, but it no. feels like that that sort of national competition, that that sort of uh, uh, era of of nationalism feels that, that we saw in the early 20th century, we're kind of starting to experience again. I think that's right. And when you, if we circle all the way back to our opening topic and Donald Trump, uh, you know, when he, when you have a candidate talking about the poisoning of the blood and that immigrants are undermining who we are as a, as a, as a country, right? That that throws you back to those previous eras, right? And talking about immigrants being dirty and whatnot, right? I mean, the, that's the history of immigration. Every time yeah. a new people come to this country, there has been that same 
claim. And I think it's you sort of hoped that in the 21st century you move past that. But I, I don't think we have. And and I don't think it's limited to the United States. So I, I know we yeah. need to wrap up, but I'll end on a positive note. The other prediction I would make is I, I think we're going to see some good climate legislation over the next couple of hmm. years. It feels like we're maybe reaching a tipping point where the world and the United States is starting to take climate seriously. And there's and it doesn't mean we're going to solve it by any means, but I feel like we're entering a space where we might see some some positive trends, both at the state and maybe at the federal and hopefully at the international level as well. It feels like we're just sort of moving in that direction. So there's a lot of bad, but maybe, maybe we'll start to to make some good things happen with the environment. I think you're right. I think that we are at a place where lots of things are coming together. Uh, the the stakes are becoming so clear that countries feel like they have to do something. And yeah. on the other side, tech, new technologies and and innovation have led to you know solutions. And and I, I think you're I think you're right. I think we might start to see um, some shifts. I the other, I mean the other part is that like, we talked about this in the past. There were signs. There were positive signs this year for democracy that yeah. the sort of backsliding of democracy globally might be starting to turn a corner. And despite all the negative stuff we talked about during this episode, I think there are still reasons to be hopeful for that as well, that maybe we're at sort of the low point in in this uh, era of global, uh, of, of global democratic decline. And, and like you were saying, you know, uh, immigration backlash and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it is, it is an interesting point to be alive. It's an interesting point to be talking about politics and I am forever grateful to have this platform to be able to share and kick ideas yeah. back and forth. It is, uh, I hope our listeners enjoy it as much as we enjoy this sort of dialogue. Me too. And I fully expect that this time next year, we will have a year in review that is full of nothing but positive <laughs> stories. <laughs> I will say, you know, last year, my New Year's resolution was to eat more chorizo. And I'm thinking maybe this oh, year I should yeah. I should eat a little less. Uh, I think I did. I was too. <laughs> I was too successful. <laughs> Hey, you know, proud of you, Bill, on both counts for succeeding on last year's resolution and for uh, for for seeing the error of your ways. That's right. All right. Why don't we wrap up? Phil, you want to remind everybody how to stay connected with us? Yeah, you can find us at thepoliticslab.com, where you can, again, find old episodes, find information on Bill and I, all that stuff, social media. And of course, you can find all of our old episodes on all your normal podcasting platforms as well. That's fantastic. All right, remember, uh, listeners, we will be gone next week, but we will see you in two weeks. All right, see you, Phil. Have a nice New Year's. Happy New Year, Bill. Have a great trip. All right, bye-bye. Bye.